This program is brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U at Stanford University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu. An advocacy organization on behalf of women and their families based in Washington, D.C. And um, we have a really wonderful set of panelists in our group, as has been the case throughout the whole day. So I'm going to start my remarks by echoing a theme that you've also heard, which is thanks to the organizers of this quite extraordinary program for the terrific care and thought put into uh, assembling it. And I think all of us are getting an enormous amount out of the experience. And it is a wonderful treat for me to be a part of it. So. Um, our panel is called The Footprint of Title IX Beyond Intercollegiate Athletics. And as you heard from the last panel, of course, Title IX covers far more than athletics. But I think our panel still is focusing on athletics itself, but outside of intercollegiate athletics per se. Um, we're going to be talking about high schools, uh, potentially Olympics and youth, uh, state responsibilities and opportunities, and I could see one of our experts is on her way to join us. So um, I will give you a brief introduction of the panelists and make my remarks since I'm supposed to be a panelist participant moderator and uh, then turn it over to the three extraordinary people who are joining me on this panel. Uh, by way of introduction, Deborah Houston is, um, joined the Office of Administrative Hearings in December 05, coming from the Legislative Council Bureau. So she is very much an expert in California and what has happened from a legislative perspective here. She joined the Legislative Council Bureau in 2000 and for the next three years practiced law in the areas of public health and human services and uh, worked on a variety of issues involving health care, mental health, children's systems of care, among others. And then in 2004, she became a principal consultant to Assemblymember Daryl Steinberg uh, during his last year in the assembly, and then she returned in late 2004 uh, to the Legislative Council Bureau where she practiced education law, and she staffed the Assembly Committee on Education, and during 2005 drafted numerous special education legislative measures, among which was AB 1662, and that conformed law and amendments uh, with the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, and I know is going to talk about legislative initiatives having to do with gender equity that are supplementary to and important in relationship to Title IX. Anita de France, uh, from her official biography that I have, uh, is an attorney and member of the International Olympic Committee. Uh, which understates her leadership role in the inter or groundbreaking uh, role in the International uh, Olympic Committee. 
1976 and 1980 was a member of the Olympic teams for the United States, at, at which it was at that point that I first met her when she was a law student. Uh, and is a member of the board of directors of AAF, which is managing Southern California's endowment from the 1984 Olympic Games. In addition to her Olympic bronze medal performance in the 1976 Games, Anita de France won a silver medal in the 1978 World Championships in rowing, was a finalist in the World Championships four times, won six national championships, the IOC awarded her the bronze medal of the Olympic order for her leadership role in fighting the US government-led boycott of the 1980 Olympic Games in Moscow. She is a member of IOC's juridical, uh, jur juridical, I knew I didn't get that right, commission, the finance commission, that I know what that is. Uh, the Coordination Commission for London in 2012 Olympic Games, the Sport and Law Commission. She's president and member of the board of director of Kids in Sports Los Angeles. She's a member of the Global Council, International Museum of Women, the NCAA Leadership Advisory Board, and I can tell you from firsthand experience, she uses all of these extraordinary platforms and leadership opportunities to be an advocate for women in sport. Marie Ishida serves as executive director of the State California Interscholastic Federation. She was the uh, federation president during the formation and implementation of the organization's strategic plan. And under her leadership, it changed both philosophically and with respect to its governance, becoming a service organization to member schools. On both the state and national level, Ms. Ishida has received many accolades and honors. In 1997, the National Federation of State High School Associations bestowed her with their Outstanding Service Award. She was honored with an Extraordinary Service Award by the um, California Interscholastic Federation and received the California Coaches Association's highest honor as a recipient of the William S. Rockwell Distinguished Service Award and she currently serves on the National Federation of State High School Association's Board of Directors and Hall of Fame Screening Committee. So you can see why I wanna talk quickly so that we can get to this extraordinary set of panelists. I just wanted, because uh, most of the day has been focused on intercollegiate athletics, uh, to tell you just a couple quick things. Um, and observations that I have and my own uh, perspective uh, from the National Women's Law Center. First of all, as we've been talking about with the extraordinary progress that has been made, that it's really no surprise that the job hasn't been finished and that we still need more enforcement because the truth of the matter is the Title IX in general, in all of its applications, but nowhere is it more true than in athletics, has been nothing short of revolutionary. It really took on the most basic ingrained stereotypes about women's roles, capacities, where they belong, and of course, with those stereotypes and ingrained views, an enormous financial infrastructure and required change. And 
to think that we could accomplish that kind of revolutionary change and finish the job in 35 years, I probably in my early days would have thought we could, but in truth, it really takes, it's extraordinary that we were able, all of us and so many others, to make the progress that we have made, and it will take many more years of determined effort to continue to push the envelope and move forward. And that brings me to my second point, which is from the very beginning, there was some reference to how hard it was to get Title IX passed and how much all of us owe to those who fought to get it enacted. But it, as everybody here also knows, it has been an extraordinary fight every step of the way to keep Title IX in place, let alone move the envelope forward. We are still in the fight. Uh, the National Women's Law Center began in 1972, just as Title IX was passed. And I myself and many of my colleagues have been involved both in making progress, but also making sure that we don't slip back. And I don't think we have ever been in any more danger than we are right now with respect to chipping away of Title IX, the kind of policy changes and interpretations that we've been hearing about, the risks and new continued lawsuits that are being brought, and it takes a lot of vigilance on all of our part to keep Title IX being the engine for progress and equality that it's been for the last 35 years. And the last very quick thing before I just give a, a couple quick points about high schools is that Title IX has been defined in many people's minds as the law that deals with athletics. And many people don't even realize it applies outside of athletics or even intercollegiate athletics. And of course, it has a broad application. But part of the reason I think that it has been defined by athletics is because the gender inequities are so out there. With a separate women's and men's program, you can mostly see the extreme disparities. There's not a lot of subtlety there, even though many people aren't fully aware of the depth of the discrimination. And it's also been in the area of intercollegiate athletics and athletics more broadly, and maybe it's because of the leadership that athletes have, where so many of the principles of Title IX have been established to benefit women and girls more broadly. It was a basketball coach who brought the Jackson case, and we were fortunate to be his lawyers in that case, that won in the Supreme Court and said that retaliation is prohibited by Title IX, whether you're a history professor who complains or a math student who complains or a coach or an athlete who complains. It was an, in, an athlete who established that sexual harassment is prohibited by Title IX in the Supreme Court. So the fight in athletics is not only extraordinarily important for what it means for athletic opportunities for all of us and our daughters, but what it means with respect to opening up opportunities in education more broadly. And so I couldn't be more grateful to so many of the athletes and the leaders in this room who fought this battle for everyone. Okay, high school. A couple quick points. Three million participants, about. 
young women in high schools today. Before Title IX, 300,000. About 41% of high school participants are women. About 50% of the population in high school is female. So we see the participation skew in high schools that we see replicated in intercollegiate athletics, just as we've also seen an explosive growth since 1972. Same problems with lack of equality once you even get to play at a high school level, except for the fact that we don't have the recruiting and scholarship issues by and large, especially certainly in public high schools, but we see inequity in fields, in coaching, in training, in uh, all kinds of support, in attention paid to female athletes, in practice times, the list goes on. The athletic associations in high school are, have also challenged whether they and the rules they set are subject to Title IX, as in fact has been the case with NCAA as well. And the Supreme Court, it didn't get very much publicity but the Michigan High School Athletic Association had been challenging, and this is a case that we, the center has been involved in as one of the council as well, the fact that they had taken their male competition schedule that had been set, and post Title IX, when women teams got added in high school sports, simply fit the women's teams in around the male schedule. And as a result, a number of women teams across the state are scheduled to compete in non-traditional, as they are termed, out-of-season uh, play. They get short shrift with recruiting for colleges, for scholarship opportunities, for interstate play, for all kinds of opportunities as a result Michigan is the last state in the country that has continued to insist on setting its schedule this way. And after nine years of litigation, they petitioned to the Supreme Court, argued that they shouldn't be covered at all. I am sorry to say that much of the high school athletic establishment sided with them but the Supreme Court did not take the case, and finally now Michigan must comply with a number of lower court decisions that had held that they were illegally in violation of Title IX, give, uh, shortchanging their female students' opportunities. Donna Lopiano made a very important point, and that has to do with getting the facts out to the public. We know even less about high schools than we know about the true facts with respect to colleges' treatment of male and female athletes. We have the Athletic Disclosure Act with respect to intercollegiate athletic treatment and, and colleges and universities' treatment of women and male athletes. And that has been an engine for changing scholarships, 
and for opening up opportunities uh, that's been very important. We have very few statistics about what's really going on in high schools today. We know that outside of the participation percentages that there are problems. Every time the National Women's Law Center gets a high school complaint, and I'll give you one example, and we left materials out, Prince George's County, a suburb of Washington, D.C., came to us with parents upset about a softball field, visible, clear inequity between the baseball field and the softball field in a high school. You'll not be surprised, anyone in this room, to know that the problem wasn't limited to the softball field in that high school, and the problem wasn't limited to that high school. We did an investigation of the entire county, worked out a settlement agreement, and we have materials that describe that settlement agreement, and the county stood up with us publicly at a press conference proudly agreeing to look and change their facilities, support, and across the board for all of the high schools in their responsibility. And now with the spring, there were newspaper stories about how thrilled the girls were, their parents were with these fields and what an extraordinary difference it made. And it was a real win-win situation. There is an enormous way to go in high schools too, an enormous, um, opportunity to shine the spotlight on high schools and below. The High School Disclosure Act, there's been question about how can we join together and really get some common action. That is something that we urge everyone to be pressing their, their members of Congress to focus on. We have a website. I, I know the Women's Sports Foundation too. Ours is nwlc.org. There's also title9info.org. Sign up. We have alert systems. We will let you know when we need your voices, and we do, we promise you. And so we hope that you will work with us in shining a spotlight not only on the inequities at every level, but also ways of changing. So with that, um, I'll turn the um, microphone over. And um, I'm not sure if, Deborah, do you want to go next? I'm sorry for the long bio. I was not planning to be here today. You all were going to have Senator Daryl Steinberg as the speaker for uh, this portion of the day, but he was unable to make it because of the legislative calendar, which is very unpredictable at this time of year, and he was called into session. Um, I received a call this week, which is the reason for the long bio. <laughs> I didn't have much time to put one together. It was taken off my current employer's website. But uh, I worked for Daryl in 2004. I was hired to be uh, his principal consultant during his last year in the assembly. And uh, the reason I was hired by Daryl was because I had done the legal drafting for Proposition 63, which is was the Mental Health Services Act that was enacted in 2004. So he needed someone who had experience in mental health. 
However, one of the first days that I was working there, we were all huddled in Daryl's office, and the way the legislative process works is at the beginning of the session, people bring in their bill ideas, and Daryl has a limit on the number of bills that he can carry for the session. So he has to select among the dozens or hundreds of bills that he's going to carry. And one of them was what became AB 2404 and it was brought to his office by the ACLU. And Darrell, uh, his first job was in community youth athletics. He grew up in Burlingame and that was his first job. He was very involved in community youth athletics as a youngster. But he couldn't believe that girls were being excluded from community youth athletics. And I believe that the universe put me there in his office because uh, when my daughter was six years old, uh, we lived in Carmel Valley, it was 1991. Uh, she and her friends wanted to play Little League, and I and her friends' mothers went to sign up the girls, and uh, they were a little befuddled because they hadn't had girls uh, interested in playing before, and there was no softball league. And the reason there was no softball league was because there was one baseball field in Carmel Valley and that was uh, leased to the Little League for 30 years for a dollar a year. And the Little League had been unwilling to share the baseball field uh, with girls for softball purposes. So our girls' only choice was to join Little League, which they tried to do. Well, they were told that uh, none of the coaches wanted a girl on his team, so what they would allow us to do is to have our own team of girls. So I became a coach, and I had never played sports in my life, but there I was coaching with a few other moms, and our girls did well. They played for two years. They played t-ball. And then it was time to move up where you no longer use the t. So that year, the Little League told us, well, we're not going to allow you to have a girls team anymore. So what we're going to do is have a policy where uh, there will be no more than two girls on each team. Well, at the time, I was an, appell an appellate attorney, so I knew how to do legal research, and I had a friend who was very much a feminist and into feminist issues, and she was an appellate attorney also. So we started doing our legal research back in 1991 and came up with the same legal authority that the ACLU uh, relied on in suing uh, several cities in Southern California and that was the Unruh Civil Rights Act, which prohibited discrimination in public accommodations. Uh, there was the Equal Protection Clause of the federal constitution and the state constitution. So there were these provisions of law that generically prohibited discrimination against girls and women, but getting any park and rec district to believe that that really did apply to them and to their athletic programs was difficult. As a matter of fact, the attorney for the Carmel Valley Park and Rec District was the president of California Women Lawyers. So we went to her and pled our case and said, you know, we, we, need, we need equal access to the fields. We want to start a softball league. And she said, well, we've rented it out. We've leased it for 30 years to the Little League. We don't have any say-so about what they do with their field. 
Well, it turned out that this was a statewide problem. Little leagues throughout the state uh, had lease holds on the fields and were pretty much guarding them with their lawn mowers so girls would not be able to have access to those fields. So when, the, when we were sitting in Daryl's office talking about whether he would carry this bill, AB 2404, he said, well, you know, is this really a problem? And so I told him my story and I said, well, you know, if it happened to me, it's gotta be happening to other people out there. He sent the ACLU out on a fact-finding mission just to make sure because members, and Daryl has won awards for his high level of credibility and integrity, and members don't want to carry a bill unless there's a problem to be resolved because the purpose of legislation is to resolve a problem. So he sent the ACLU out to collect um, stories on what kind of discrimination was going on statewide in community youth athletics. And sure enough, story after story of girls being excluded from the fields or uh, given substandard fields and given far less of the, the county or park and rec district money for their programs. Um, so Daryl decided to carry the bill and um, Daryl, by the way, is, he's an honorary member of the Legislative Women's Caucus. He's just completely in favor of making the world a better place for girls and women, and he appreciates athletics. So once he was convinced that there really was a problem, he was happy to carry the bill. So um, AB 24, I mean, excuse me, AB 2404, uh, what it does, I, I brought a copy of the bill with me if any, you, if any of you are interested in seeing it later. But basically, when the ACLU came to Daryl, they said, we want to have a Title IX that applies to community youth athletics. We want equal everything. If the boys have a field, we want the cities and counties to build one for the girls too. So that was the way the bill was originally drafted. Well, the California Park and Rec Society and the League of Cities uh, went ballistic because it was going to cost them billions of dollars to duplicate all of these things for girls. The League of Cities lobbyist, by the way, was a softball player herself who had been excluded from fields in the 1960s. So there was this amazing coming together of people who understood the issue, and she was our opposition on this bill. So um, they complained that there was going to be a lot of cost. Um, I still, have, I still have my file, and here's the list of alternatives they gave us to the bill. They wanted us to gut, is called gut and amend the bill, and what they wanted us to do was have the bill be a model ordinance or policy. Um, they wanted the bill to encourage greater gender mingling among local sport programming. Basically, they wanted to water it down so that it would do nothing. Well, because of their opposition uh, and because of the fiscal crisis in the state, there was no way that we were going to be able to get that bill passed with all those costs associated with it. In California, when the state legislature passes a law that requires local agencies to uh, do anything, if there's a cost to the local agencies, it's called a state-mandated local program, and the local agencies are able to file a claim with the state to get reimbursement. So you can imagine 
the amounts of reimbursement that would have been required. So I was working with uh, attorneys from the ACLU, Soli and Rocio, I forget their last names now, and Valerie Small Navarro, who's the ACLU lobbyist, and she's also an attorney. So we all got together and came up with the idea of creating a cause of action which imposes no state-mandated local program. And uh, the idea basically was that uh, we would create a cause of action and we would use Title IX factors for the judge, or if there's a jury trial, uh, to use to determine whether there had been discrimination. So basically, AB 2404, and you can, you can look it up on the internet by, by Googling that, uh, it basically says we're creating a cause of action for girls to sue if they've been discriminated against, and if they sue, then the way it will be determined whether the discrimination actually happened was whether they have uh, in, unequal locker facilities, unequal playing fields, unequal access to uh, the money that's spent on community youth athletics. So basically, it was it's private enforcement. It allows for private enforcement of a public right to be free of discrimination. Uh, so the bill passed. We got almost no, no votes on that bill. The Republicans were fully on board. There may have been one no vote along the way, but basically everyone was on board with that bill, and Governor Schwarzenegger signed it uh, without a problem. And then we set about finding out what kind of impact it would have. Well, Team Up for Youth, which is an organization in Oakland, became very involved in creating an information packet for girls to use to find out what their rights are and how to go about filing complaints and enforcing their rights. Um, Daryl was invited to the California Park and Rec Society talks, and they are the ones who will be uh, implementing AB 2404 in order to protect themselves from being sued. So, and we did, I think we all know that um, one way to, to affect change is to um, threaten people in some way or make them fearful of losing their money or uh, their assets. So um, CPRS invited Daryl to their conference and he wasn't able to go the first year, so I went in his place and there was a very hostile and angry crowd among the California Park and Rec Society folks. <laughs> they were not happy at all. Uh, it was a small crowd and uh, an angry crowd. But by the next year, when Daryl was invited back and wasn't able to go, and I, I went in his place, instead of being like 18 or 20 angry people or 30 angry people in the audience, this was their uh, statewide meeting and there were about 300 people there and they were really working on ways to um, come into compliance and figuring that, getting legal advice and figuring that if they get sued 10 years from now, they need to be able to show that they have been complying with our Title IX-like factors. They need to be able to show that they have been, they have a history of affording equality to girls. And the only way to do that is to document 
your improvement. So there was a lot going on at the seminar, uh, their most recent seminar about including girls. And the, a young man from West Sacramento, Jeff, I forget his last name, he was the head of Park and Rex in Sacramento. He said, I will be the first to stand up and say that I am embarrassed to tell you that we have looked at our records and 85% of our park and rec money has been going to boys programming. So uh, he acknowledged that there was a long, long way to go for people. But the nice thing is that they were all there and um, looking for ways to change. When I was, yesterday I did a little research on the internet in preparation for this and I found um, this is from the city of West Covina. They enacted a policy uh, based on AB 2404, um, approve the gender equity data collection plan, approve the gender equity grievance procedures. So cities across California are enacting these local policies so they can ensure, because now they have a reason to ensure, that girls are getting equal opportunity. Now, why is it important? Uh, Team Up for Youth has been doing a lot of research about the lack of involvement of girls uh, from lower income communities in community youth athletics and has really focused, Team Up has focused its energy on getting girls involved, getting girls from lower income communities involved in recognition of the fact that if you're not there practicing when you're a teenager, then you're not going to be able to make the team in college or make the varsity team in high school. So, um, it's important to afford girls that opportunity. Now, is Tara Vanderveer here? I thought I saw her during a break. Um, I was going to tell a story, I was hoping she was here, that when we were in the process of getting AB 2404 through the system, Team Up sponsored a big event in San Francisco and Gavin Newsom was there and there were it seemed like dozens of former uh, Olympic athletes, women, there were girls who were involved in sports. And Daryl gave a talk about his experience in community youth athletics. And um, by the end of the talk, almost every woman and girl in that room was in tears because of, you know, we all felt our own individual form of loss of being excluded. And one thing Tara talked about in her talk was that when she was in high school, there was no league for basketball for the girls. So she played one-on-one -on -one and she went up for the shot and she went up for the rebound and that's how she got her practice in high school because there was not a league available for the girls. So um, I would encourage you all, piggybacking on what, uh, what we just heard, that the system, the legal system is there to be used and um, encourage girls to use it, to file their grievances, their complaints. Um, there are ways to get involved in the political system. Every little bit helps. I mean, for all of those decades to pass and for politicians 
not to even know that girls were being excluded from community youth athletics is sad. So I think it's important that we all continue to speak up on behalf of girls. Thank you very much. Okay, I'm up. First, I'd like to thank our host again for making this happen. And I'm particularly delighted that this comes under uh, the Department of Ethics. I think, as I had a chance to mention earlier, this is an ethical issue. What and how are we treating our fellow human beings? And is this acceptable? I believe that sports belongs to us all, that it's part of our nature as human beings. We are the only species that takes part in sport. Um, I've never seen uh, anyone else set up hurdles to race across them or any other animal do that. I've seen an ant crawl on a twig to get across a body of water. I've never seen the ants line up those twigs to get across the body of water. There's something about sports that is important to humans, and I think it is the powerful form of thought that it is, is involved in sport. I believe that sport requires the I'm not a Cartesian philosopher, but I believe that sport requires the, the body to be directed by the mind through the dimensions of time and space. And every sport involves the dimensions of time and space. And when we do that exquisitely, we call it being in the zone. And I'm sure everyone in this room has had that moment when things just happen. You can't explain it, it just happened. My first time with that was in high college, which is the first time I had access to sports. There were no sports for girls, and especially for African-American girls, when and where I grew up. So high college, I take, try out for the basketball team. The coach says, I need to take the high post. I had no idea what that was. So I look at the floor, and there was an empty spot. So I went to that empty spot and uh, made the team. Um, but what I know now to be a blind outlet pass was, for me, a remarkable moment when I went up for a rebound, next thing I knew, Les had the ball at the other end of the court and made a basket. It was this moment of excellence, and for decades and decades, boys and men have had those moments of excellence in sport. Every girl and every boy needs to have that opportunity. Um, we need to work towards having moments of excellence throughout our lifetime to use those exquisite moments not only in the playing field but in other parts of our work. And we can do that if we take this stuff seriously and take sports seriously. One of the um, reasons I believe that sports is a birthright is that, again, every kid should have a chance to take part in sport. And the work I do in, in um, in Los Angeles is to, uh, to serve you through sport. That's the mission of the Amateur Athletic Foundation. And we do that through making grants, by creating programs, by teaching people how to coach. And one of the things we've added to our coaching work lately is an explanation of the ills of doping, because a lot of high school coaches have no idea. They know that steroids are bad, but they have no idea how bad. They know that certain things are, are, are there, but they don't know where it is. So we're helping the coaches learn about that. Uh, I'm bragging because we have the wonderful position of being able to, in the wonderful position of being able to do those things. And one of the things we're doing also is an initiative in middle school, developing teams in middle school. 
so that the middle school kids, and we know that's where kids start dropping out of school, is middle school. The kids start dropping out of high school and middle school and drop, start dropping out of life in middle school. So we're looking at middle school as a place to get girls and boys more involved in sport because it keeps them more involved in their community, keeps them having friends and, and having people who rely on them and they learn that they can rely on people who are not, and girls in particular, not their very best friends and not be isolated. So this is a major initiative that we're undertaking and uh, would love any ideas that you have about that. We're actually going back into the schools and getting teachers to become coaches. We're training them, pay them a thousand dollar stipend, which seems ridiculous, that's for a whole year, but um, that's a lot even to afford for them. Why is this important? Because we want kids to have all that sport has to offer, and sport has a lot to offer if it's done um, ethically. It is hard for me to understand how the, how the institutions have gotten away with this all these years, have gotten away with ignoring this law, have gotten away with underserving their student athletes, their student bodies. It just makes no sense to me that we're talking today, 35 years later, and we know that there are assaults on the law, there are probably a couple lawsuits filed every month to again attack attack it. There are people who are believing that only boys should have access to sports um, because after all it's about manhood. It's about humanity. And dear friends, men and women are not the same. And thank goodness for that. But one thing I hope we will always, always remember that we are absolutely, unequivocally, equally human. And that's what we have to work for. went to one. All right. Oh, there it is. Well, you already know who I am, so I'm not going to introduce myself again. I just want to say thank you for sticking with us. <laughs> for uh, it, It's been a long day for you, I know, and a lot of good information. Um, and I was just thinking as I was hearing all of this, um, going on. Um, I am a product of, of Title IX. Uh, not that I was able to play sports in high school because I graduated from high school in 1965. So the only sport available for girls at my high school at that time was co-ed tennis. So I did play co-ed tennis. But I come from the era where first I played three-court basketball. Then we progressed to two-court and we got to dribble twice. Uh, before passing, and, and then by the time I left uh, high school, um, they, they were playing on the, the full court. I am a product of Title IX in one respect uh, also because I'm in this particular position. I'm the executive director of the California Interscholastic Federation, and it, that's the governing body for high school athletics in the state of California. Our membership consists of 1,482 private and public schools, over 700,000 student-athletes uh, at any given time. We're divided up into 10 different sections and we have 10 different uh, 
section commissioners. We're also a federation, meaning that those 10 sections are semi-autonomous. So it takes a lot of begging and angst to try to bring all, all 10 together, but for the most part, uh, we do a very good job. In 1995, I was president of this organization and I had the opportunity to hire the executive director at that particular time. At that time, I was assistant superintendent of human resources for Santa Cruz City Schools and uh, never gave it a second thought about applying for the job myself. One is I didn't think I was ready at the time, but two, I knew the organization was not ready to hire a woman executive director. Uh, at, at that particular time, we used to joke to ourselves, but it was true. We, we used to say to ourselves, um, all the decisions were being made in the men's bathroom. Uh, and that's where they were being made. Not out in the open, but they'd go in the bathroom, make decisions, because when they came out, they had a totally different view than when they walked in there. We joked about it for a long time. Now the women are making the decisions in the women's uh, bathroom. Uh, and I, I, I'm just teasing. Um, about that, not about the decision-making, but because that is, that is particularly true. Listening to the conversation um, today and talking to some people out here that have stuck uh, through this, this, this whole day, it's about communication. I'm saddened because I had to come to this conference to learn that there are three lawsuits going on with three of our member schools in the San Diego area. I, I shouldn't have to find that out here uh, if our communication system is working within our organization. Obviously it's not. Obviously we really need to look at that. The other thing about communication and hearing from the different levels, we don't communicate with each other enough. I mean, I'm hearing some things for the first time that obviously affect what happens in, in uh, colleges and universities and community colleges. Um, Anita was just talking about this coaching education program. We have a wonderful coaching education program that we provide for our coaches that talk about Title IX, that talks about steroids and performance enhancing substances. We ought to be sharing our information uh, without duplicating our, our efforts. So those are, I, I don't know what system's available for us to get together a little more often, but I, I think we need to start talking to, to, each, to each other a, a lot more than than at these types of uh, functions. I've got a series of slides I'm going to show you. In, 19, um, not, uh, 2000, in 2003, the, as a result of um, AB 2295, um, there, was a, there was a bill passed that uh, in, told the California Post-Secondary Education Commission and the California Department of Education to conduct a Title IX compliance study. And they conducted it at three different levels, the high school, community college, and um, uh, colleges and universities. And a couple people were actually uh, in this room were on that, uh, that particular committee. Now, I'm only going to be dealing with the, the high school portion because that's, that's my area uh, that I represent. But if anyone's interested, there's this whole packet of the complete study for community colleges, high schools, and uh, colleges and universities. I happen to have the high school portion down in front here. I made copies of, of that portion. After the presentation, please come up and um, get a copy if you'd, you'd like. And I can also tell you where you could get the whole text if, if you want to. They had, 
As a result of this, at the high school level, they found several findings. Finding number one, 26% of the 125 reporting high schools were, were in compliance with Title IX based on proportionality. That is, had participation rates that were within five percentage points of the enrollment rates for each gender. On average, at that particular time, I think it's a little over 50% now, girls composed 49% of the high school student population, only 41% of the high school athletes in the sample were girls. In addition, the boys had nearly two more varsity teams on average than did girls. Recommendations, this is a great one. California legislature allocate funds. <laughs> well, we've not seen any of those funds yet. Uh, but that was one of the recommendations. And also to provide technical assistance to school districts in how to meet athletics participation requirements of Title IX. We actually started on that. Dr. Mary Gallat, uh, who works with the California Department of Education and was at the time doing the coordinated compliance review uh, surveys and so forth, actually came to one of our Title IX trainings and was impressed enough that she scheduled uh, CIF to go to their administrator trainings in the summertime that dealt with the coordinated com compliance review to talk about Title IX. Uh, the dates were set and then their funding got stripped and they never had those trainings so that's still on the books but we've not been able to do it. Also the recommendation is help schools develop long-range plans for their athletic programs and technical assistance again as well. Part of the difficulty in developing long-range plans for athletics at the high school level, just as it is at, at any other level, is the funding source. One year the funding is there, half the time you're having to create your own funding source and going out and soliciting funds so you have money for one year uh, and one year only. The next year the money isn't, isn't there and it's real difficult for high schools to develop long-range plans when they're also the high school funding plan uh, is not um, uh, known from year to year. And that also, one of the recommendations was that the legislature mandate that public high schools report athletics data annually. Uh, one, to ensure an efficient process for monitoring Title IX, and then B, to increase districts and schools' awareness of issues and guide administrators in making improvements. Second finding. Boys teams had more coaches than similar girls teams, and boys teams had more experienced coaches than girls teams. Not, I, I think all of these findings have, have been talked about today, uh, even at the collegiate level. They're certainly there at the high school level as well. There were no clear differences between boys and girls teams in the use of on-campus versus off-campus coaches. Major problem that we have in high school athletics today is that over 60% of our coaches are walk-on coaches meaning they have very little connection with the day-to-day -day operations of the high school. Most of them are not educators, do not come from educational backgrounds, and it is very, very difficult to make sure that those, those particular coaches are in service properly. The recommendation, as part of the increased training and technical assistance recommended for high school athletic directors, coaches, and administrators, uh, they also recommended that the legislature provide funding to CDE or CIF to help train districts in those types of strategies. Again, it, a lot of it ties, ties to funding. Uh, and as I heard about the, the college and, and university issues and the funding issues, um, it, it brings me to mind that not once did I hear regarding the athletic program at the collegiate level did we talk about educational athletics. 
At the high school level, we talk about nothing about, but educational athletics. Um, I, I think as, as we talk about collegiate athletics, we're also talking about a different type of model, and we refer to that model uh, oftentimes as a business model. High school, collegiate athletics has become a huge, huge business in part of the program, and that part seems to be driving oftentimes what, what's happening. No, last finding, fewer than 25% of the survey respondents reported that coaches or administrators had received Title IX training in the previous three years. Boy, that doesn't say much about our efforts to, to try to help train our administrators and our coaches. Uh, this was a couple years ago. I think we've been doing a better job, but that, that, that's an eye-opener to us. The recommendation, training to be incorporated as part of the recommended technical assistance that is not there to support schools. What we've done is we've tried to uh, bridge that uh, particular gap, and I'll, I'll talk to you about uh, that in a few minutes when I talk to you about what CIF has been attempting to do to try to remedy some of our, our Title IX issues. Some of the other potential issues that came out of this, um, th this data, Hispanic students may be underrepresented in athletics. Uh, we feel that that's true. Uh, we have a new plan on, on the addition of state championships, and part of that plan uh, also covers the, the uh, interest in a particular sport, but also the demographics that uh, target that specific championship. And one of the things that we just started, we're just adding for next year is a Southern California Regional Soccer, a championship for both boys and girls. High potential issue, high school's purchasing of equipment, uniforms, and supplies. You can read all of this, and this is in our um, the paper that up here that I provided for you, so I'm not going to necessarily read it to you. You can see it. Publicity and promotion. Support services. Areas with no significant gender disparities, and, and there are three of them. Scheduling of games, locker rooms, practice, competitive facilities, medical training. A lot of those, those issues now are what, what happens for the boys happens to the girls. Uh, all of our sections are very good about making sure if, if there's a 24-game uh, schedule for boys in basketball, girls will get that, that same. The, the facilities, uh, although I think the locker rooms sometimes are still, uh, still an issue in, in some of our schools. The practice and competitive facilities, for the most part, are getting pretty comparable. The competitive facilities I'm talking about, like basketball, a lot of our schools only have one basketball court or soccer field, and both the boys and girls get to play on, on that particular facility. Um, medical training and facilities and services, uh, they're basically the same for both boys and girls. We don't have them. And that's that's uh, a, a real difficulty uh, for us. Strategies used to achieve gender equity. On that, that same survey, they asked uh, schools what, what best practices are out there. And these were some of the things that, that our schools uh, mentioned. Nothing new, nothing that should surprise uh, uh, any of us. Uh, one that not surprised me, but I felt I, uh, it was interesting to me, it was the very last bullet, offer as many freshman teams as possible. And that is a way of, of uh, ensuring that you have the interest uh, all the way through. And last but not least is, is I just wanted to show you some of our, our last participation survey. 
Uh, you can see that the, the 10 most popular in terms of participation for boys on the left, and you can see the 10 most popular sports for girls. This was based upon a survey uh, from two years ago. We're in the process now of conducting the same survey. The National Federation asks us to do this every year because we use this information for a lot of things and they use it. We just can't do it every year. Our schools, it takes um, an inordinate amount of staff time, which we have very little, not only time, but, but staff, to make sure our schools respond to this survey. We end up calling every school who hasn't turned in their survey, survey to get the numbers in. So you can see the, the, the most popular sports in terms of participation. Uh, for some reason, basketball for girls uh, declined a little bit. Not exactly sure why, uh, unless because soccer's become so popular in, in parts of our, most of our state, soccer's played in the winter just, just with basketball. Interesting. The one thing that, that did stand out is the total number of boy participants as opposed to the total number of girl participants. There's almost 20,000 more boys uh, participating. And, and you can see a good chunk of those probably are, 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 are football. CIFA actions taken to address some of the Title IX issues uh, in our schools and as a result of, of this survey and this data. What we've done is we've, we've tried to train an expert in all 10 of our sections. So if any of our member schools have an issue, they can call this person for assistance. More times than not, when you call that person, they'll refer them to, back to the state office. But that's okay. At least we know that there's an issue out there. Um, we've been working with CDE, CDE to provide information and training for school administrators. The action through the CCR and those trainings for administrators uh, during the summertime. It's still on the books. We're still talking to, to, to them about uh, being able to assist them with that. Um, we're providing a Title IX component in our coaching education program and our leadership training classes. By the way, uh, coaching education is, going, is mandated for all coaches in the state of California by December 31st, 2008. Whether a coach is paid, unpaid, volunteer, they have to be trained. And part of that training includes not only Title IX, but it includes steroids and other performance enhancing substances as well. We've been working with the CDE, OCR, and Women's Law Center uh, in terms of um, issues that come up. I just learned today again uh, about those three lawsuits from, from Liz with the Legal Aid Society. We've had a very good relationship with, um, with OCR and the Women's Law Center. Uh, and as I was preparing this slide, these slides, I was thinking, wow, I haven't heard anything from the Women's Law Center recently. And uh, a part of it is because, again, about communication. The woman that we used to, to, to talk to a lot, uh, Nancy Solomon, retired or left. Uh, Linda Joplin with California Now, who used to call me all, all the time, has retired. And I'm thinking, how do they get to retire? Uh, and I'm still here. Doesn't make sense, Linda. Okay. But we have been working with them to the point where OCR would call us if there was an issue and say, you know, hey, we just got this complaint. What about it? When Nancy used to call us, we've got this complaint. You know, can you help us? Um, we recommend every year to our member schools that they administer the interest survey. We've got it up on our website. We've got Title IX information up there that they could pull down. Again, I think it's about communication. We send it out. Every year, we, we recommend it. 
Uh, we have articles in every one of our CIF news that we publish uh, four times a year. We still have too many schools who aren't paying a bit of attention to it until there's an issue or a complaint. Uh, that's, that's basically the, the text of my comments. Um, if you have any questions, um, I'd be happy to, to answer them uh, along with uh, Anita and Deborah and uh, Marcia. So thank you very much. Thank you for sticking with us. This is most definitely a hardy group. There's no, I'm very committed. So questions? Good, the wine's getting chilled, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> okay, it's a, it's a short question then. Anita, could you, could you talk a little bit about what the IOC is doing to support uh, women and girls in sports, please? Certainly, the IOC passed a policy in 1996 saying that they wanted to have in, by the year 2005, at least, at least 10% of all the decision-making uh, boards made up of women, and by 2005 to have at least that number uh, increased by tw to 20%. Uh, we ourselves have failed at that, but we're working on it. The IOC does not meet that own goal. Uh, we have had success in many sports. Uh, for example, the Rowing Federation meets the goals, and uh, we've had success in many National Olympic Committees. So we're continuing to work on that. We did a study of the National Olympic Committees, of which there are now 200 and either three or four, and found that the women who were working in these NOCs, National Olympic Committees, were typically better educated than the men. When they did work, they did it better and they completed it and they were willing to work harder. I bet all those things are surprises to you. Uh, but this is worldwide, which is quite interesting. This is worldwide. We are also, I'm very proud, my strategy was to attack the field of play first because then this issue of, oh, they know nothing about sport um, would be put to rest because if you're an Olympian, how can you be said, what, how, how can they say that of you? You know, something important. And I'm proud to say that in Beijing, 45% of the uh, positions at the games will be held by women. So that's a dramatic increase over the last 20 years, so 45%. We had 41% in Athens, so we're working on it. Um, we also, uh, you know, working on getting more women involved in the decision-making, and I need help worldwide um, and strategies to get more women involved. We've done a good job. Africa has uh, five women who are presidents of NOCs, which is that, that uh, a continent has the largest number of women who are presidents of NOCs. We need more women who are presidents of international federations, and they come through the national federations, pretty much. Athletes elect, we have, the athletes get to elect four members of the IOC among their peers at every games, and they have consistently elected women. So it's working at that level. We have two, we have more work to do, but we are continuing and we will complete this. Um, we need to have at least 20% critical mass and uh, once we get to there, I think it will continue on its own. Quick answer, not enough.
Marie. Um, the statistics that the CIF collects from each individual high school, is that available to the public in any form? Yes, we have it by, um, not necessarily by school, but we can get it. Uh, we have it by section, total number by section and statewide. We okay. receive it by, by school, so. Do, do you have any idea that if, I, I looked on the, um, the National Federation, Federation website. website, and they have a chart of every state in the District of Columbia, and California was like ranked 30th as far as percentage of women athletes, if I'm remembering correctly. Um, at, at, I think it was 42%. Uh, so there's a lot of states that are doing better than California. And I'm wondering, do you find that there is a significant deviation of a lot of schools are close to 50-50, and there's still some schools that are down in the 30 percents, um, or is, is everybody hovering around 42 percent? I would say most are, are around that 42 percent, that because in most of, most of our schools, it, it, it's very clear now that the, the variance comes when you have um, two basketball teams for girls and three. Or four. For boys, or four. That's where the real variance is coming. They'll have basketball, right? varsity and JV, but then on the boys' side, they might have three or, or four, four teams. That's the same issue I was dealing with in 1976. Mm -hmm. I think I'm next. Um, as I look around at the tremendous, you know, leaders in women's sports that have participated as panelists and in the audience, I'm struck by the fact that with a few notable exceptions, we generally are all women. Um, and, you know, with looking at the Daryls and the few notable exceptions that are among us, Welch, thanks for coming, um, you know, short of giving every male uh, a daughter that excels in sports, I was wondering, you know, if you've had success at really engaging the other sex for being proponents, because I personally have found that there's no stronger proponent for, um, you know, equity on these issues than, you know, the father who has that daughter who, you know, who has been shorted out of practice time. And so are there other things that we can be doing as a community to engage them and bring them on our team so it's not just litigation and, and legislation that are our answers? Well, uh, there are, I think it's an excellent point. Let me just start with the litigation side of it, which is that it's often been the dads who have come to the organizations with real complaints. Often the mothers are supportive, but they never played themselves, and so they're so ecstatic that their daughters are getting any chance. They don't have, you know, a sense of the level of support that would go to male athletes and the fathers who are you know, really angry that these talented daughters aren't getting what they deserve. But moving beyond that, there's actually a California-based organization, Dads with Daughters, that's been very involved on the advocacy side, but also, you know, not necessarily, they, they certainly have been there with legislative and public policy issues, but also working in communities. Many of the male coaches um, the Jackson case was Roderick Jackson who talked about having a daughter and a son and he was, he was coaching a girls basketball team and it just didn't seem right to him. So he, he stood up and complained and lost his coaching job as a result. But 
he was there fighting for it. Um, we have seen some uh, men who control national poll polling. In uh, Wall Street, NBC Wall Street Journal did a poll during the commission fight around the future of Title IX and published findings as, as the USA Today with a number of males in the media uh, to really try to gauge public support for Title IX. And the Wall Street Journal NBC poll uh, asked the question in a way that was in one degree, you know, the most negative you would think for Title IX, which was, did you support Title IX's fight for equality for women, even if it meant the cutback of men's sports, and there was an overwhelming percentage of people in that poll that said yes. And then Tim Russert on NBC Today highlighted that poll and asked um, some senators and others from the administration who were there expecting to be interviewed on other things about what their position was. And uh, so I think that if you look at the sports pages, there are a number of male reporters covering this issue. Um, of course, not to the degree we might like, but still, if you look at the editorial pages during the cutbacks uh, on threats, very, very strong support. In Michigan, after this lawsuit, uh, Michigan newspapers, by and large, very strongly supportive. So I think that it, your point is very well taken. Um, in our Prince George's County case, it was uh, male coaches who came to us uh, with a problem. So, I, you know, from lots of different perspectives, getting the word out, getting people to understand the inequities then gets a lot of support on, the behalf, on behalf of many men in many positions where they could be of real help. Maybe we could get uh, some guys to figure out how to help the schools not, you know, have to lose the, the men's sports and also do the right thing for the women's sports. There's a, there is enough money there. It's how it's being allocated. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that's so painful. And when you hear this story with respect to, oh, well, you know, you couldn't pass a law that was going to say bring up and add to the public support and public accommodations for girls. And so it's kind of kicking the can down the road a little bit about when these lawsuits are brought, what's going to happen? Are there going to be more resources? And women are sort of stuck in this position of either stepping back and saying, OK, we'll wait our turn even if it never comes because there are never resources. Or, you know, look, if, if people are going to have to suffer with limited resources, we want our fair share and we'll push together with the men, but we're not always going to wait uh, and be the ones who are taken care of last. Um, there's no doubt it's really an issue of priorities. That's one of the, the lessons I think that became very, very clear, you know, today among other, other days. But it is, it is getting a lot of allies, including these guys, to say the priority should be finding the money. Hi, Marie. I was wondering if you have the data on the number of female coaches in the high school system in California. Because I know as a high school educator, many years ago, it was a very, very low percentage. 
It, it is, and I don't have the, the, the latest, and I'm trying to think of, of where the latest data is on that. And um, the same, at the same time we do the participation survey, we added on about coaches, about whether they were walk-on coaches or, or hired coaches. And I'm trying to, I, I don't think that we even put the question on there if you're male or female, which would be a good way to find out for that information. But I, if I had to guess, I bet it's really probably pretty low and, and getting lower. We had a, uh, the NCAA funded for like five years um, a minority coaches uh, a program. And one of the target areas was California and the LA city market. And it provided training uh, for these women coaches, free of charge, uh, providing them with resume built, all those types of things. We had trouble trying to find coaches to fill those slots. Um, now, one of the things that, oops, I think we, I hope we could look at is a lot of times it's hard to make the decision to be a coach. Being a coach is hard. It's hard work, it's draining work, and perhaps we need to look at how the job is created and do it differently. Um, one of the things that I found with women, you know, internationally, if a woman won't go to a meeting, I'll say, oh, the women won't go to a meeting. I'll say, well, maybe you shouldn't have it at 9 o'clock uh, down the alley in the meeting room on top of the pool hall. Perhaps if you had it at lunchtime, the women would come. And doing things differently, and perhaps we need to look differently at the responsibilities for the coaches so that women whose needs are different in many respects can come back into the, uh, to the fold. It's a male thing now to be a coach, so it's designed to support men. Let's look at the design of being a coach and see if we can make it more open so that it can support both of the sexes. Uh, I have one point to add. Uh, just as we start grooming girls to be athletes when they're young, it's also important to start grooming people to be coaches at, at, um, for girls who are young so they can work their way up and coach at higher levels. Um, as a result of AB 2404, the city of Oakland um, implemented a program where they sent out letters to women athletes in the community, um, about 600. Uh, letters went out recruiting women who had been athletes to be coaches to fill that shortage of women for those jobs. And I, I think that is one factor under 2404 in community youth athletics. Finding qualified coaches is an issue throughout the state of California, mainly because of, of the low pay. Uh, the coaches are not willing to be yelled at and screamed at uh, on the sidelines any longer. You've got parents out of control in the stands, and schools are having to take a stand on that particular issue. Otherwise, we won't have people out there coaching. We just can't pay enough. Uh, I had a quick question for Marsha. Um, you know, as with your role with the National Women's Law Center, I feel like you surely must have your finger on the pulse just about as much as anybody um, in the country, and so, and we've been talking today about how it hasn't been a picnic. There's been no picnic from the beginning to now. So when you start out by saying you think that things are about as dangerous, in a sense, for Title IX now as they ever have been, that's a little bit alarming to me. I wondered if you would comment about what it is that you were referring to. Was that 
sort of like a general statement or do you have some really specific concerns about what may happen in the next uh, months or year or two? Well, I, I have, um, when I said that, I meant Title IX as it has been interpreted and enforced. Um, there haven't been a lot of lawsuits over the years with Title IX, and there are a lot of basic issues like, does it cover retaliation that just got resolved by the Supreme Court? And the whole three-part test has been upheld by every court of appeals, and I think there are either eight or nine of them all across the country that have considered challenges to that three-part test, held it isn't a quota, held that it is reasonable, et cetera. I'm concerned because we have some, for the first time, a real retreat in the Office for Civil Rights interpretation of that three-part test with this survey that really undermines the whole principle of the interest part of the prong. And because the Supreme Court has never really, has never taken the case, and many of our cases involving Title IX honestly have been five to four cases with Sandra Day O'Connor writing and becoming the fifth vote. And we see lawsuits, you know, such as Eric is continuing to bring and others that are making these challenges and they haven't been successful so far, but the courts are very different now than they were. So I, to the extent that we've had a legal framework that may not have been enforced to the degree we would like and it's been taking you know, an awful lot of on the ground efforts, every single attempt in the courts to undermine what Title IX has meant has really um, backfired, and the courts have been very supportive so far. As I said, this is the first time with this, this new clarification that we haven't pushed the envelope forward on the interpretation, but we've taken a step back with the agency, uh, the Office for Civil Rights that des is designed to be the expert agency and we're continuing to see these challenges and I worry about honestly the new, new courts and where that will ultimately take us and so I think that public support that, that judges are people and they, they have a sense of what the, what the community values and principles are and so I wasn't being alarmist in a way of being um, unoptimistic. I was really sounding an alarm as a way of really trying to energize all of us not to simply think that, okay, we've got Title IX, it's secure, and we have to just keep enforcing it. But really, I think we have to fight continually to maintain Title IX and keep it strong for those reasons. Um, I would add one thing, and that's that um, one way to make sure that Title IX is enforced is by filing complaints when there are violations at the grade school, junior high, and high school level. 
And in line with Jeff of the city of West Sacramento, I have a confession to make. My daughter played volleyball in high school in Davis. We got a new gym with air conditioning. The old gym didn't have air conditioning. The girls got the old gym to practice in. I didn't file a complaint. The volleyball girls were expected to work at the concession stand to raise money for the football team's bus. They didn't get any of the money. I didn't file a complaint. So there were many things when my daughter was in high school playing volleyball that would have been grounds for a complaint that even I didn't do. So unless those complaints are filed, nobody knows there's a problem. And I'm sure the Office of Civil Rights keeps track of how many of those complaints there are. Um, I don't really have a, a question, but more of a, just a follow-up in terms of the, the, the shortage of female coaches. And I just wanted to share, I work with Team Up for Youth, and I'm the director of Coaching Corps. And this is a new program that we just started um, and that we're implementing at five different colleges in the Bay Area. And what we're doing is we're recruiting, training, and supporting college students to become coaches. And one really great thing that has happened from this program is 60% of the college students who have signed up have been female. And it's been really powerful. We um, have really kind of changed the model of coaching. Um, what we have is we have coaches that um, are partnered up so they're not coaching alone. I think the combination of us offering training, ongoing support, we offer academic credit and a small stipend. And so we've really been able to get a strong presence of female college students to coach who then are working with young people and really encouraging these young girls to become more active in sports. Some of the coaches that I have have shared with me that the girls that they're coaching in softball teams and various teams have shared with them that it was the first time that they've ever had a female coach, that they've had male coaches throughout their whole life, but how it was amazing for them to have that experience of having you know, a female coach um, and a college student. So we're really trying to kind of engage in this pipeline of getting young, young kids active in sports and also getting young college students to think about coaching as a, as a possible profession. One last question. Okay. Okay. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Kristen. I'm a staff attorney at the Legal Aid Society Employment Law Center, and we, along with the California Women's Law Center, have filed two lawsuits against high schools in Southern California for failure to comply with Title IX. I think it's a really important thing to remember that we have this enforcement ability out there that we want to bring these cases when necessary, but of course, when we can cooperate and resolve these things, I think it's really important. One um, kind of comment or question I had was, in terms of training coaches, how can we train coaches to help be allies for us in terms of Title IX enforcement? And also in terms of the Family Violence Prevention Fund, for example, has a coach's playbook trying to teach coaches to help teach male athletes about violence against women and how it's not acceptable. So I think we should maybe, and I'd like to hear if you, you've done this at all in your curriculum, kind of think broadly about training coaches and trying to bring them along in a couple of these other areas. Yeah, we have, and we've worked with uh, a couple of other organizations uh, too. Um, uh, I'm trying to remember the name of one. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all of these things are important and, uh, you know, 
we don't have enough money to do everything, but we have the flexibility to do a lot of things. So if people have ideas about what ought to happen, please uh, feel free to send them my way because we can work with you and maybe get some really important things done, which gives me the opportunity to ask for something that I need, if I may. I've been looking for a fluid dynamics engineer because I really know that I need something for the sport of rowing and I just need an engineer who can figure it out. And so I'm looking for someone who might be able to help. It'll help our sport. And our sport, the noblest of sport, will help the world if we can get that done. So I'm putting out a plea for someone who knows um, fluid dynamics. has a Mentors Against Violence program that is a great model program that uses um, uh, student athletes in, in the process, the coach gets trained to um, influence other uh, men in, uh, at an institution um, on the subject of violence against women. So it's a great program. Yeah, they do great work. Uh, they haven't come out to this coast as much as they would like to either, but you're absolutely right. Okay, well, again, thank you all so very much. Thanks to the panel for being so terrific. And for their hard work. And thanks to all of you for sticking all the way through to the end of the program. And the preceding program was brought to you by Stanford on iTunes U and is copyrighted by the Board of Trustees of the Leland Stanford Junior University. Please visit us at itunes.stanford.edu.